This is the first of uh, what I hope Yimir Hashem will be a three-part series as we prepare uh, together for Pesach. Uh, today we're going to be giving a halacha shir on all of the halachos of the Seder uh, in general and specifically how they apply to women. And Yimir Hashem next week we'll discuss cleaning and koshering. There's a dilemma, you know, how early is too early? Didn't want to wait till the last, you know, too late. So I figured the two weeks before Pesach is a reasonable time to uh, start that pleasurable process uh, that we all look forward to of uh, pre-Pesach cleaning. And then, Emir Hashem, the, the, the week of Pesach, we won't have a shir. The week before Pesach, that final week, we will not have a, any shear. But that uh, the last week of this series, which will be two weeks before Pesach, a little bit less, we will have a shear uh, more on machshava, on some of the, you know, meaning, in general, the meaning of Pesach, or maybe we'll do some Haggadah Devrei Torah. Why shouldn't the moms also be able to give Devrei Torah to Seder? Um, so maybe we'll, we'll figure out something, but that'll be something more machshavti uh, about the, uh, the, uh, the message and meaning of Pesach and and, and the Seder. But today we speak about uh, the mitzvahs of the Seder, and I guess as a uh, slightly humorous or acute uh, introduction, I'm reminded of an old Yiddish story, I think I first heard this from uh, Rabbi J.J. Schachter, uh, about how there was a couple, a uh, family that was sitting uh, you know, by the Seder, everyone was around the table, and they were up to the uh, ten makos, and they're each dipping their fingers in, and dam, sfardeya, and then the, somebody notices uh, in the family that the bubby, the matriarch of the family who was hosting the Seder with all the kids and the great kids, she dipped 11 times. So I said, you know, you know I thought it's, it's only 10. Everyone knows. You know, she says, I know. <laughs> with all the work the women have to put in before Pesach, there was, she, was, she was dipping for one other makkah. So I'm sensitive as the only male in the room uh, to the incredible mysterious nefesh that women often put in uh, in advance uh, of the Seder and uh, at the Seder itself. Uh, and therefore it's out of that sensitivity and great respect and admiration uh, for Nashim Tidkanios uh, throughout the generations. It's important... Uh, to come into the Seder with a proper uh, perspective and, frankly, with just simply enough energy, uh, which sometimes women don't have. I've seen it. Uh, just enough energy in order to be able to enjoy the Seder, have a simchas yomtev, uh, and also be able, of course, to fulfill the mitzvot uh, of the Seder. And uh, whether that has to do with budgeting one's time over the next few weeks uh, so that you're not completely crazy at the last minute, or I strongly encourage uh, getting help to clean the house and things like that. We'll discuss how crazy you have to be bechlal to clean the house. That we'll discuss next week. Uh, but there are all sorts of wonderful services. In fact, someone told me that there's two uh, fantastic young men. Oh, yeah, they're my sons, right, who have a business cleaning uh, it's not only a good way to make them, you know, learn what it means about hard work. You're teaching them, you're doing them a favor. Uh, but if they can do you a favor and help make uh, your preparation easier, I recommend them. And um, if Nebuch, they're too busy, so then I, I understand there are lots of other people and other people's kids who have similar businesses. But obviously, the Yaakov and Yosef team are the recommended ones, officially sponsoring today's year. Okay. So I'd like to break down uh, today's uh, shear uh, into the mitzvos of the Seder with... Uh, the issue of reclining in general, and again, how that relates to women, is kind of um, something that is, I wouldn't say it doesn't relate to the entire shear, but it relates to obviously a lot of the specific mitzvahs we'll discuss. Um, there are seven mitzvahs that we're obligated in at the Seder uh, every year. Two of them are Midah Raisa from the Torah, and five of them in our generation are Rabbinic, are Midah Rabbanan. The two which are Midah Raisa, which we'll start off with first, are Sipra Yitzhiyas Matraim, the Haggadah, telling over the story, and Chilas Matzah. Those are both considered Daraisa even nowadays. Uh, and the five that are Mirabanan are um, the four cups, uh, Moror, Ahalel, 
and things like that, which we also say throughout the Seder. Those are all considered uh, the Rabbanon, um, etc. Okay, so let's focus specifically on Sipra Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, which is you know, maybe the essence of the entire Seder, and uh, one of the important mitzvahs, the Oraisa. So the source of this, uh, the Rambam and Sefer Chinuch tell us, is based on the uh, Pasuk in Shmos, in Perakid Gimel, Pasuk Has, Vigad Levincha, and the Saper, there's a mitzvah of Sipor. Uh, and what's interesting, uh, and I'll just briefly get this, uh, there's enough material in this one point we're about to make, even for a whole Shabbos Adol but just to give a brief point, um, there's a very famous question, which is, what makes the mitzvah of Haggadah or Sipor unique? After all, there's a mitzvah to remember Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, Zecher, or Zechir Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, every day of the year. We do that in Shema, in morning and evening. That's a mitzvah daraisa. So what makes all of a sudden the mitzvah of Sipor, okay, the verb is different, to remember or to tell. The question is, what exactly does that mean? What makes uh, this mitzvah different? And this has had a lot of discussion uh, over the centuries. For whatever particular reason, I don't know, it has, partic- it has uh, somehow gelled uh, even more than uh, usual around the Salvechik family and the Briskers. They have a disproportionate contribution to this question, even though other people have discussed it. And I think at one year I was able to collect 10 different answers to the question, or 10 different unique dimensions. We won't go all through 10, but just to highlight some of the main ones, which I think are salient for all of us as parents and as grandparents, to be very cognizant of at the Seder. Um, and that is, number one, part of what makes Sipur unique at the Seder, is that it has to be done, derech she'ela v'tshuva. It's not something that we just think, and it's not even something that we just declare, but the whole framework of question and answer, which is really a bedrock of all education, but especially, we know it's a prominent element at the Seder, it's not merely educational, it's also, according to some, part of the definition of what makes Sipri Yetziat Mitzrayim unique um, at the Seder night. In addition, as we know, we say this in the Haggadah, Masil Benus, we start off with the negative, the downside, we, you know, like a good story arc. Uh, for those who appreciate a good story, uh, we don't whitewash the history, we start with the bad. In the Gemara, between Rav and Shmuel, how far bad do we go? Does bad mean the slavery in Egypt? Or does bad mean all the way going back to Terach and Arami or Vidovi in the earlier parts of history? And if you remember from year to year, and if not, you'll get refreshed in a few weeks. In our Haggadah, we do both. We incorporate both. So we do the, not only the long story of, of the Exodus, we do the long story of Jewish history in miniature form um, at the Haggadah. And that broader perspective of the historical experience, not just you know, the highlights, you know, uh, the trailer, but the whole story, if you will, not just the final chapter, but the whole story and the story arc, that's, according to some, very much part of uh, the mitzvah. Uh, others suggest that an additional factor um, is, again, not just the question and answer, but the fact that you're supposed to say to somebody else. In fact, the Gemara says, even, I mean, you can't imagine anything that would be so sad, but let's say someone was alone for the Seder, which for the most of Jewish history would be inconceivable, except for two years ago during Corona, when even then it was rare, but it did happen in some very uh, tragic situations where people literally, I don't mean husband or wife, I mean sometimes there was a widower or a widow or single people who were literally alone. Uh, but in that, just to illustrate the point, thank God that that's very rare and hopefully should never be repeated, but the Gemara describes what we Paskin that even someone who's by themselves should read the Haggadah in a question and answer format. It's not just a way of communicating with other people. The nature of the mitzvah is is, uh, is, uh, is question and answer, and also the idea of telling it over. You're not reading it, you're telling it over even to yourself, uh, as the case may be. And one final point I'll mention, um, 
is the fact that uh, all of the deeper reasons and the extra meaning, uh, please come on in, uh, there are seats, uh, please, the, the deeper meaning of the mitzvah is also uh, part of this, what we would call the Tameh HaMitzvot, uh, which we discussed with Pesach, Matzah, Maror, and all the embellishment uh, of this, Kalamarba, Harizem Shubach, obviously none of that is something that we do on a daily basis, but that is something that is unique uh, for the uh, Seder night. So that's the basic contours of the first mitzvah of Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim. It's an interesting side point. Again, this could be almost its own shear, but you'll know, even though it is a mitzvah da'oraita to tell over the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim and the Haggadah, we don't make a bracha on that mitzvah. We make plenty of brachos at the Seder, on the Mar, on the Matzah. But we don't say, Asher Kedashon Mitzvotav Vitzivanu, you would have expected there be, would be a bracha. It's one of the 613 mitzvahs. It's mitzvah daraita. So there's all sorts of discussions. Uh, some of Farshim say, well, maybe some of the brachos that we say in the Haggadah anyway, like Asher Ga'alanu, maybe they count uh, for the mitzvah. But I think that the more insightful and I think very meaningful, even on a spiritual level, uh, answer is that, in fact, we don't say, we don't try to figure out some hidden way where we're technically alluding to the bracha. No, no, we have no bracha. And why not? So I think there's really two uh, very profound uh, insights which are relevant just to mention. One is the Maharal. Maharal says the reason there's no bracha on the mitzvah of the Haggadah on, of Sipresi at Mitzrayim is because even though we are saying all of these things, we have to realize that the essence of the mitzvah is that we should feel the experience of the Exodus, the feeling of the thrill, the exhilaration, the Hakaranatov. That feeling, which again, it's always important in, in all of Judaism and all of life. We don't want to just go through the motions. We want to connect on an emotional and deep uh, existential or spiritual level. That is true in general, for sure. But it's especially true, says the Maral at the Seder. And since the essence of the mitzvah is something in the heart, says the Maral, in general in Judaism, we don't make brachos on things where the real mitzvah is the heart, even if we have some physical expression uh, of that. For example, we don't make a bracha, al-bitul chametz. Even though we do the kol chamira, we have to mevatul chametz, none of us want to own chametz. But nevertheless, there's no bracha, asheker shamasosav. That has to do with things that we do with our, with our limbs, and this is really a mitzvah of the heart. That's one, I think, very important idea. A second idea which... Many, many years ago, I remember reading for the first time, and it always struck me because I think it has applicability to a wide range of examples, um, and also because it was an ancestor of mine, which is the Sfat Emet, the famous uh, Ger Rebbe. So he says the reason we don't make a bracha on this is because if you wanted to sum up the whole Haggadah, and this could be very important depending on the age of your children, or, maybe, or no matter what your age of your children is. There's so many different Torah and all sorts of other things, but you don't want to lose, you, know, you, want, to make, you want to make sure that you don't forget the main thing. And the main thing, says the Sfas Emes, if you had to summarize the whole Haggadah, Hakar Tov. Gratitude to Hashem for what He did for us. Says the Sfas Emes, once, if, you, if you accept His assumption, He says, so in general, we don't have a bracha on things like Hakar Tov. Right? We, do Hakar, we hopefully have Hakar Tov in lots of areas of our life, and hopefully we're educating our children and grandchildren for that, uh, you know, 12 months a year, not just at the Seder. But nevertheless, why is there no bracha? So it says the Sfas Emes, part of His overall theory, he says this in a number of areas, is mitzvot, which are so obviously intuitive and logical, don't have a bracha. We don't make a bracha on kibar av'ein. We don't make a bracha on doing chesed. We make a bracha on giving tzedakah. So there are different answers to all those questions. The Sfas Emes has one answer to all of them. He says mitzvot, which are so obviously and compellingly rational and intuitive, we don't make a bracha. Well, why not? Are we anti-rational? No, on the contrary. When we make a bracha, what are we saying? As if 
he understands, we're basically saying we wouldn't do the mitzvah unless we were commanded. Who would shake a lulav if you weren't commanded? Who would blow a shofar if you're not commanded? We would never wouldn't dream on it. It's, we're not saying it's irrational, but it's not something we would have caught up on our own. So the bracha you know, makes, is, a, is a declaration, so to speak, of faith. I am doing this because Hashem commanded. But wouldn't we have a kar hatov for our parents, even if we weren't commanded? Even if there was no mitzvah, wouldn't we have a kar hatov for Hashem giving us freedom? Wouldn't we want to help poor people, even if we weren't commanded? So it says, as far as I'm honest, we only make brachas on things which are um, in, in, not intuitive. So, again, how much you want to you know, elaborate on the broader theme um, at, at the Seder or other points, I think it's a very important lesson to give over to children um, and to think about ourselves, but especially in terms of framing what is the whole essence of the Sahagara, says as far as you can boil it down to one phrase, hakarda tov, gratitude, and for him that also explains why there is uh, no bracha. Uh, last but not least, before we move on to the next mitzvah, is the question of whether women are obligated in the mitzvah of the Haggadah, of Siyat Mitzrayim. So, theme alert for the rest of this year, you are, like in everything uh, at the Seder. And it's actually a very interesting uh, halachic uh, reality, because as we know, women are not always obligated uh, in every positive mitzvah. In fact, Someone will remember, was it two or three months ago, earlier in our series of Shurim this year, we did a two-part series uh, on women in mitzvahs uh, and that broader point and why there are some mitzvahs that women are not obligated in. And the classic category of mitzvah as man grama, positive time-bound mitzvahs, one would have thought would exempt women from the mitzvahs of the Seder. Just like a woman's not obligated to sit in a sukkah, that has to be on the 15th of Tishrei, or this is on the 15th of Nisan, if it's on a calendar date, you know, usually those kind of mitzvahs women are exempt from. Again, we're not getting into the details now of why and all that that we discussed uh, in the previous series. But it would seem ostensibly on its face a perfect candidate for women to be exempt uh, from the mitzvahs. And basically, the, each of the different mitzvahs might have slightly different reasons, but the most common reason that explains many, including why women are obligated in the Haggadah, is based on the well-known principle of we, have, we saw this again in that series a few months ago, and most of you are probably familiar with the concept, which is that, says the Gemara, even when you have a mitzvah, which seems to be time-bound, but if it was a story in which women were just as beneficiaries of Hashem's uh, great kindness as men, i.e., we were all going to get killed by the Egyptians, we were all enslaved, it wasn't good for anybody, men or women, or, according to other interpretations, uh, women are the catalyst of the miracle, and in the case of Yitzhak uh, Mitzrayim, we have the famous Chazal of Bizchut Nashim Tzidkaniot, Negulu Avotenu. So whichever, whichever interpretation you have for that phrase, Pesach is a perfect example of that. So it says that the Sefer Achinuch and others, that women are obligated in Sipra Yitzhak Mitzrayim based on the principle of Afein Hayub Osa Nes. Now, it is, there is a little bit of wiggle room for women uh, given the fact that it is this extra limud, and it is true, again, especially for women who may be hosting the Seder, that they can't always be at the table for everything. The truth is, depending on the feasibility and the makeup of your family, you know, I would vote, if possible, if a woman needs to step out to go and put things up on the blech or whatever, so then, so then wait, you know, why should she have to miss anything? Again, that's not always feasible with young kids or other things going on at the Seder, or if it's getting too late, people might want to, you know, move along. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not micromanaging anyone's personal Seder. But my point is, if for whatever reason you have to be either, uh, you have other preoccupations or other responsibilities, so just to be aware, uh, minimally, certainly a woman has to be part of Kiddush. We'll get to the whole mitzvah of four cups later in this year. But a woman certainly is obligated uh, in Kiddush. In some families, like in mine, we have a minhag uh, that literally everyone, men, women, and child, we all sing Kiddush together. Uh, or if you do it more like you do on a typical Friday night, either way, uh, but women certainly are obligated in Kiddush. Uh, the first of the cups, as we'll see, women are obligated in all four cups. Uh, but also, uh, basically, uh, the 
the crux of the um, of of the story. Uh, basically, when we as we know, as we say in the Haggadah, you know, anyone who doesn't say these three things, so that section of Ramah Gamliel, until, until we drink the second cup, that is absolutely critical for a woman to say. She definitely is obligated in that mitzvah, uh, just like men. Um, and Mir Banan also, as we'll see towards the end of this year, even Hallel, the end of the Seder. And of course, the, the Mishabru and others bring down that the Minog is, and it certainly would be important for as much as possible of the Seder, especially the, the Ten Makos and things like that. Certainly women should uh, be part of the Seder. Um, and, you know, again, everyone's family has, you know, different Sadarim. You know, I, I remember when, I remember when we got married, and I know it's true, uh, many other people have told me the same thing. When we first get married, that first Yontif you go away, right? No one's Rosh Hashanah is exactly the same, and no one's Sukkot. And yet it doesn't really seem to matter. No one seems to mind going to their in-laws for other Yom Tovim. But the Seder, like there's just, there's no two Sadarim that are the same and most people grow up loving their family Seder and it's like the hardest thing ever to adapt to someone else's family Seder. So however your family Seder goes, uh, you know, some are more participatory, different people read different things, whatever. I'm, we're not going to do, we're not back in kindergarten, we're not going to do model Seder now. Um, but whatever that is, I, you know, both on a spiritual, religious level, but also on a strict halakhic level, uh, women should be as much, I, I think it's unquestionable, women should participate as much as possible, and everyone else at the table should be making sure to help uh, that it is feasible for the women to be able to participate as much as possible. Okay, that's our first topic of today. The second mitzvah, which is a Doraita mitzvah at the Seder, is matzah. Even nowadays, even without the Korban Pesach, matzah is its own independent mitzvah. And the Gemara tells us, because even though many times in the Chumash, Matzah is linked to the Karban Pesach. That was kind of like the lafa that you would have the steak in. That's Karban Pesach was a nice good lafa, uh, you know, shawarma. Uh, but the Gemara points out there's at least one time where the Pesach says, Be'erev tochlu matzot. On that night, on the 15th of Nisan, you have to eat matzot, and that Pesach makes no reference to the Karban Pesach, i.e. it's disconnected. There's an independent mitzvah, you have matzah, and even though we don't unfortunately have a Beis HaMikdash, we don't have a Karban Pesach, but matzah is considered midoraisa as an obligation, uh, even uh, nowadays. Uh, it's interesting, the, the Chassam Sofer just points out as an aside, uh, it's really an amazing thing to appreciate, because you know, especially in Israel, we only get it one night a year. If you're in Chutzlaretz, you can get it twice. Uh, but Chassam Sofer points out, from the Torah's perspective, we went all the way back to the Chumash, there are a lot of foods, a lot of eating mitzvahs, that were the oraisa, right? Truma and, and, and Meiser, things like that, mitzvot pluyipa'aretz, things like that. Even Shemitah nowadays, back in the beginning of the year, we spoke about the Shemitah nowadays is probably only Durabanon. Um, other examples, uh, eating a carbon, Meiser Shani, all these things, you know, it wasn't just like a Catskills joke about Jews loving eating. Like there were a lot of real mitzvot that related to food. None of them exist anymore, at least on a daraisa level. The only eating mitzvah we have, Daraisa, all year round, nowadays, says the Chazm Sofer, is eating matzah at the Seder. So it really is a big deal. Um, and very, very important. Um, the Gemara uh, tells us, and of course all the Mepharshim Paskin, like the Gemara, that women are obligated to eat matzah as well. And this is the one mitzvah in particular at the, on the night of the Seder, which you're obligated in, but not because of Afein Haib Oswanes. You're actually obligated even more, so to speak, than that. Why? Something very interesting. And again, this is something just to keep in mind throughout the year, or even on Pesach, especially if you're looking at the Pesachim and the Chumash, you know, the Torah gives a lot of attention in various places uh, to the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim and also to the mitzvahs of Matzah and Chumash and all these related Pesach topics. Um, and the Gemara points out in a number of places, often 
unforced from a shop perspective, almost sometimes even non-sequiturs, the, the chumash often lumps together matzah and chametz. A chametz pasuk will all of a sudden throw in matzah, and a matzah pasuk will always throw in, automatically throw in, uh, unnecessarily seemingly throw in matzah, and vice versa. So says the Gemara, what do you see from this? That the two mitzvos are inextricably linked. I think I said this in a Shabbos of God Rosh two years ago, what I like to use, you know, coin the phrase, that, you know, chametz is matzah's evil twin brother. It's something that, could, you know, it could have been, and you just waited that extra minute too long. It's the right, the right they're, like, they're like mirror images of themselves, it's the Yaakov and Esau, you got, but they're, like, they're, they're, they're twins, just one's the good one, one's the bad one. So there are numerous ramifications of that. One of the ramifications, says the Gemara, is anyone who's prohibited from eating chametz, by definition, is also obligated to eat matzah. You cannot have a Jew who would be obligated in only one of the others. They go together. They're a team. And therefore, since women are prohibited from eating chametz, just like men are, so it must be, it must be, that women are also obligated, in eating matzah as well. So your chiyof of eating matzah is no less than any of the men in your family as well. And that's a very important point to keep in mind. Now this relationship, I won't dwell on this too much, I don't think it's necessary for a shir like ours, but just to point out, this relationship, if you will, uh, kind of giving you a new way of thinking about it, this relationship, the sibling rivalry between matzah and chametz has other ramifications as well, including what ingredients matzah can come from. Says the Gemara, based on the same idea in the psukim of this kind of interconnection between matzah and chametz, the only ingredients that you can use and make matzah out of are ingredients that if you would have waited a little too long, would become chametz. Uh, but you can't have, just as an example, you can't have potato flour matzah, since I know they can make potato flour pancakes and waffles. And last night I was at a wedding, and they were serving you know, shredded steak sandwiches, which you didn't have to wash for, you didn't even have to make them a zonus for, in potato flour rolls. You know, so they were getting ready already. You know, this is like the newest wedding shtick. Yeah, just in case you're wondering, it's, it's a thing you can do, and you should. As a guest, we appreciate that. Uh, I can tell you, I had two. Uh, and I would have had more, but they cleaned it, they took it away. Uh, anyway, so um, you can't have a potato flour matzah, because potato flour, no matter how long you let it rise, no matter how long you, you wait while you're kneading it, it wouldn't matter. Potato flour can't become chametz. Only the big five grains can become chametz, and only, therefore, the product of the big five grains can become uh, matzah. And just to review, uh, what are the big five grains, of course? Wheat, spelt, barley, oats, and rye. Any of those, in theory, could become chametz, so we want to stay away from that. But if you had matzah made out of any of those, that would be, uh, should be kosher for uh, Pesach. Similarly, another question, uh, the other factor in the ingredient, of course, is what is the liquid binding agent that you're using. So really, you should just use water. Matzah should just be flour and water. Uh, and in fact, if you would add other juices to it, it could be problematic on a number of fronts. And these other juices, you might think, well, who would ever do such a thing? You may not realize it, but what, what we colloquially refer to as egg matzah is exactly that. And egg matzah is a coverall phrase for fruit juices, eggs, all sorts of other things. White wine, Manischewitz, I think, or other companies sometimes use and make... Um, so why they would use it, why they make it, uh, even nowadays, those, uh, those, um, those products, is because certain people, especially older people, or people can't digest good old-fashioned matzah. Uh, I think the rest of us also could empathize, uh, even if we can do it. You know, it takes a little extra koyach uh, <laughs> uh, to do the entire process. We don't need to get into the details. Um, but 
certain people, it's easier to go down. It's a softer uh, digestive product. And the truth is, for older or for sick people, yeah, you should definitely speak to a rabbi before using it at the Seder. But there are allowances for people who need to use this kind of egg matzah, or what's known as matzah ashira. But there's two possible problems. This is why the rest of us should thank God for our good health and not go anywhere near it. Certainly not at the Seder, but really in general. So... At the Seder, the problem is that we know, as we say in the Haggadah, that matzah is lechem oni, poor man's bread. So you start adding these other, quote-unquote, fancy juices, it's not so poor anymore. That's one point. That's a particular problem at the Seder. In general, throughout the holiday, it's still an issue because the Gemara and the Rishonim are very nervous, and we're not really sure if we can pin down exactly, but they assumed, based on their knowledge of uh, the science or the chemistry of the day, that when you add the fruit juices, it catalyzes the whole fermentation process, the chemos process, much faster. So this whole idea, which we're not going to get into how they figure this out, but this idea that which we've grown up with about 18 minutes, and you need to finish the matzah within 18 minutes, that's true if it's water. But if you, once you add the other juices, we assume that the process goes faster, we're not sure how fast, we don't want to get into it. So you have a suffix chametz, which is bad, you, you don't have poor man's bread, it's, it's also a problem. So we, as a general rule, avoid that. Our matzahs are all just bre- you know, the, the flour of those five grains uh, and, uh, and water. Okay, that's the ingredient. Then there's this other thing which we should be aware of. Again, you've heard the phrase, you may all be, know the background, but just in case, uh, we'll be a little bit more intelligent and knowledgeable this year. And that is Shmura Matzah. What does that mean, Shmura Matzah? And what is machine versus hand? And is that only for the Seder? Do I have to have Shmura Matzah all Pesach? Um, so let's see if we can uh, fill in the background of those important questions for just a few minutes. So the Pesach says, Ushmartem Esamatos. So that's where the phrase comes from. But what, it, what was the Torah telling us? So this simple question is actually a huge machloket, probably between two of the greatest of the greats, Rashi and the Rambam. Uh, the Rambam seems to say that this just means you have to really, really, really be super duper careful to make sure it doesn't become chametz. Okay, I mean, we don't, we, you could, you know, we don't say ushmartem that you don't by accident by chazer, ushmartem that by accident you don't, uh, in general, we know that the mitzvah stay away from certain foods, and it doesn't say ushmartem not to be uh, milk and meat, because obviously we don't want to do it. But says the Rambam, but chametz is much more severe. If you would eat chametz on Pesach, God forbid. That's a capital offense in Isra Kares. So the Torah says ushmartem, be super duper careful. Okay, it's a possibility. Rashi says, no. Obviously, we have to be careful. I don't need the Torah to tell me that. You know, I don't, I, you know, I don't, again, every now and then, you know, you see people and you want, you know, you, you, I think normal people, when you're in these really dangerous places or like, you know, these high buildings, you know, the warning, you know, or like, you think, what, who needs the sign? Like, who would go close? And then you read about someone who fell off a cliff taking a selfie and you're like, yeah, people do need these signs. Um, so sometimes, you, so Barashi says, you wouldn't need a sign to say, be careful. It's chametz, of course we're going to be careful. When the Torah says Ushmartem, it meant that when we bake the matzah, when we prepare the matzah, we have to have special kavana. We have to be infusing. It's not just enough to be baking in 18 minutesing. I made that word up, 18 minutesing. Uh, uh, you know, someone can copyright it. Maybe we can make some money for the shul on that. A t-shirt, swag, we'll do merch, we'll do all the things. 18 minutesing. Anyway, you should just know, by the way, there is a, uh, Leva Torah has, a, has an oven. And I think they signed up. There was a chabura. I think in previous years there were women who signed up for a chabura to do uh, matzah baking. But I know that the men in the shul had to sign up uh, to do people make their own matzahs uh, down at Leva Torah. So maybe for them we should do your shul merch, you know, 18 minutes thing or something like that. I don't think it might be too late for this year, but next year someone make a note of that. Uh, that could be a good fundraiser for the shul. So um, says uh, Rashi, it's more than that. While you're doing that, you have to basically articulate, I'm doing this for the mitzvah. And in fact, if anyone's ever been at a bakery where they saw people making matzahs or they did it themselves, which I've done, I think, once or twice, you're always saying at every stage, L'shem mitzvah matzah. 
shame, but you want to articulate to make sure that there's uh, kavana for it. And we try, as a general rule, uh, when it comes to the, to the Seder, we try to be machmir for both opinions. We have extra special uh, guarding of the matzah to make sure it doesn't become chametz, and also we assume, you know, if we get the right, hash, you know, we buy from the right hashkacha, or when we do it ourselves, we do try to keep Rashi's view of imbuing uh, the process, every stage of that process, uh, with this extra explicit uh, type of uh, kavana. And what's, you know, we all know what does that mean? The process, right? To take anything, if we ever think about it, you know, how does it get from the, how does wheat or whatever get from the field, you know, into our kitchen? A lot of things had to happen in the interim. So there's the harvesting, the katsira, right? It's just, it's just grain. It's, there's not even then. There's the tchina grinding it into flour. Then there's the lisha, you know, uh, mixing it with the flour and the water. Then there's the afia, and there's a big machloka. Again, this would be a whole shear in itself if we wanted about when does the shimur, this extra guarding or the kavana, when does that have to start? Our minhag is, when this is also a theme alert when it comes to Pesach, we're machmir. Right? Even more than we would be for most things during the year, uh, we endorse you know, a, little, a little bit of healthy neurosis when it comes to Pesach. Uh, it's one of the area, we don't do that for every area of halacha, but this is one of the areas of halacha. Uh, again, once you endorse a little bit of healthy neurosis, it's not a surprise that some people start cleaning their floors with toothbrushes, which we will tell you next week you don't have to do, but you don't have to wait till next week. You don't have to do that. Okay, we'll get into more of the details of the cleaning and the kosher. That's next week's year. But the point is, once you allow a little healthy neurosis, it's obviously going to spread. But we do endorse a little healthy neurosis. Uh, we are machmir. So therefore, we generally say, and you'll see this. Again, if you never, you might not have ever even thought to look, but just pay attention this year when you bring home the matzahs, whether you buy them or your husband buys them, whoever brings home the matzahs, usually it'll say, you know, shamor or shamor mishas ktsira. Right, that you'll see that pretty much that's industry standard nowadays. That's the earliest stage, so it's not even flour yet, let alone mixed with water. It couldn't have been kamchametz. Nevertheless, we are very, very careful at every stage, even the earliest stage um, of the harvesting. Uh, really, 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 this level of super duper matzah is really only obligatory at the seder, because the seder is where there's an obligation to eat matzah. So we want our mitzvahs matzah, our matzah mitzvahs, to be super duper uh, karosh and careful. Nevertheless, the post can recommend, and it's widely, uh, you know, in our, in our modern economy, it's easy and it's accessible, and I think this is the common minhag. We do try throughout the rest of the chag, when we're just having our matzah butter and jam, or whatever else we might be doing, matzah bride for those week of uh, or other such things, um, and if not, too bad for you. Um, in case you wonder what my family minhag is, we definitely eat kabrucks. Um, you know, we try to use shmur matzah throughout, uh, you know, throughout, uh, throughout the Pesach. Uh, but Mi'ikaradin, if you had matzah that was again, certified, you know, that it was kosher for Pesach, because we don't mess around with chametz even if it's not the Seder. In theory, even if it wasn't shmur matzah, you know, from some early stage, you could, you could eat that other than the Seder. But I think it's a good hitter to try to only eat shmur matzah if you can uh, throughout uh, the whole week of Pesach. What about machine versus hand? Just as, you know, that's, again, I, I'm not sure if I did it in this shul, but I haven't previous stages of my career, given an entire shop, so I'm going to draw on that topic. That's its own fascinating historical and halachic topic with the history of machine matzah. It used to be very controversial. Now it's much more accepted. There are certain communities, including they say Roshlam Azam and Orbach, who felt that machine was even better than hand. That's not the typical. Like I can tell you, the typical mentality of Yidden is, you know, we get, we get very traditional when it comes to our mitzvos. A lot of people, you know, want the hand. Want hand. Again, that's also how I, how I grew up. Um, but you should know that 
for all intents and purposes, I'm just you know, being very simplistic for the moment and skipping all the details. Uh, there are different minhagim, and as long as you're getting it from a good bakery or with the proper ashkacha, uh, I don't think there's any reason to think from a strictly halachic perspective that one is better than the other. As I say, there are great postkim who prefer hand, there are great postkim who have preferred even machine, and whatever your family minhag is, is certainly from my perspective, uh, would be fine. Uh, and there are those, like for example, in my family, you know, again, I, I, can, I can't imagine ever that we would have used machine matzah at the Seder, but we use it the rest of the Chag, unless we have leftovers, because at least when my Zaydi, Allah Shalom, is alive, he bought enough matzah to last at least until Shavuos. <laughs> so we certainly had enough for the rest of the Chag. We didn't need to mess around with, uh, with machine. We, now we, we, you know, we have a little less, but I, I certainly would eat machine, again, but my family minog is I, eat, I, eat, I definitely eat hand at the Seder, uh, but there are those who don't, and whatever your minog is uh, would be fine. Yeah, Alyssa. So that, that's that, that's that sure which I, but bottom, but the short answer to your question is, in the factory when they're pushing the button, the mashkiach or the woman, whoever's making, and you know, maybe the mashkiach is a woman, that's a different question, but whoever is the mashkiach, that's not, not our topic today, uh, whoever is pushing that button, they say, l'shem mitzvah matzah. And part of, part of the objection to machine matzah was, is that effective? Can you imbue the l'shma, the l'shem mitzvah matzah to a machine, an automated process? Again, it's a fascinating, fascinating topic. Not for today, but the, if you if you do machine matzah, they're doing the lishma too, and they just believe that that works. And other people were less uh, convinced. Okay, last but not least, uh, everyone's least favorite topic, which is how much matzah do you have to eat? At least in my family, this is always I'm always fighting with my kids, even maybe other people aren't my kids, of how much uh, or of how much matzah that they have to. I just said somebody. I, a lot of people aren't my kids at the same at the same seder as me. I, I, I didn't say anything about anything. Okay, I'm gonna be walking home. I mean. <laughs> Um, so, the, like most, like not all, but most mitzvahs we have that relate to food in Judaism, uh, the shear is a kazayit, right? We know that they didn't have, you know, fancy measuring things in the time of Chazal. They use metaphors like an olive, like an egg, like a dry date, fig, whatever. We have different, uh, so the, the standard one we know is what we call a kazayit. So, there's over, again, this, I, I am literally simple, simplifying books worth of material now for a few minutes. Huge debates to try to figure out what exactly is an olive. And then we say, well, some people say an olive is really a half of an egg. The Rambam said that the, an olive is a third of an egg. We generally try to be machmir that it would be the volume of what would be the equivalent of a half of an egg. Okay, how does that help me? <laughs> What's the volume of a half an egg? So this is a huge this tumult and basically a huge thing which happened, you know, 200 plus years ago in the time of the Noda Yehuda, the famed Rav of Prague, Rabbi Cheskalando. He did a whole complicated cheshbon and he was convinced that our eggs are smaller than the egg in the time of the Gemara. And therefore we have to double whatever they used to think now we have to double the size. So do we have to be so strict like the Nota and double the amount that we're eating? Usually throughout the year we're not as strict. But when it comes to the Seder, especially for the mitzvahs da'oraisa, and as I mentioned, matzah is da'oraisa, and men and women were all obligated in it. So we take the strict approach that we try to we're, you know, have basically what would be two kizesim, because maybe the Nota is right that ours are smaller than they used to be in the time of the Gemara. So what does that mean, bottom line? So basically... Again, there's like so many different shitos out there. I can't do justice to all of them. But I would say as a rough uh, estimate, um, if you take a look, for example, like I was looking last night just uh, to review uh, as a classic English book for Americans. I looked at Rabbi Eider's famous book. And in Israel, I looked at Rabbi Rimon's. Um, and basically, it would come out that, um, let's say, for a hand matzah, you know, which are different shapes. Usually they're bigger than the, uh, than the machine matzah pieces. A hand would probably be about a half of a matzah. 
would be enough for the mitzvah. That means for each person, a half of a whole matzah. Uh, and, and if you're using machine, probably two-thirds of a piece. Okay, and so before I forget, that is for motzi matzah, right? And it's also for afikomen. Even though afikomen is probably only darabana nowadays, but for many people, some Mepharshim think that the afikomen is really the main mitzvah of matzah. And that's again, it's its own shear. It really would need its own shops of Galadrasha about what is afikomen. But some think that it's zecher, the, the meat of the Korban Pesach. But others say, no, it's actually the real main mitzvah of the matzah, because it's the matzah that was eaten with the Korban Pesach. And therefore, we, are, we try to be strict on afikomen as well, of the larger shear, which would be, uh, as a half of a hand or two thirds of a machine. Koreich, which is a minhag, zech lemikdash, you know, kehillel, kenasa hillel, so that's a minhag, so there were more mekil in terms of the amount of matzah to eat, and there I would say only a quarter of a hand would be enough. You could have, you know, I would say half of what the, the first one was. And in machine, it would be one third instead of two thirds. Okay, so that's basically uh, the idea. Um, also, again, one more technical point, and then we're going to move on to all the other mitzvos, um, is in general, this is true about eating. Some of you may remember this in the reverse. On Yom Kippur, if you ever had a hetter to eat on Yom Kippur, if you were pregnant or you were sick or something like that. So we know that in Judaism, there's always, a, in halacha, there's always two factors. One is how much you're eating, but then there's the time. Right? If you eat very, very slowly, you could eat an enormous amount, but from a halachic perspective, that would be almost meaningless because you didn't eat it in a certain amount of time to make it all cohesively into one act of eating. So in the mitzvah sense, where we're trying to eat it as quickly as possible, so it's not just how much matzah we eat, it's supposed to be with a little bit of alacrity. Uh, so how much time? Also, huge machloksim. Just like as you may recall, um, certainly anybody who over the years has asked me for Shilas, for example, on Yom Kippur, I always tell them there's a range, and I always tell them you should start being machmir, and I usually tell them nine minutes. That's the standard that we tell people, let's say on Yom Kippur, so have a little bit of like a shot glass of juice or water, whatever the case may be, and then wait nine minutes and do it again. Wait, Because that's one of the standard shurim. When it comes to things like people who aren't feeling well on Yom Kippur, we always tell them, but if, that, if you see that's not helping, then you can decrease the interval, right? The machloket range is somewhere from two minutes to nine minutes, okay? So when it comes to matzah, especially for the main mitzvah of Achillat Matzah, if you really want to do it muhudar, muhudar, so then you're having that double kazayas in about two minutes, right? Which certainly leaves you not that much room to talk. Right. If you're also talking, you're definitely not eating it enough or fast enough. That's for sure. Okay. It's not, if you need to take a little bit more time, I would say if you ask me, better to eat the right amount of matzah in four or five minutes than have three bites in two minutes. That's you really do need to eat a minimum amount of matzah. Uh, but you know, again, if it sounds crazy to you and difficult, and maybe over the years is something you've struggled with, just ask yourself. Would you be happy? I'm not talking about if you had to just go to like a second chauffeur blowing or something and you had little kids. But in general, when you showed up in shul, would you leave in the middle of chauffeur blowing? And say, oh, I heard 30, it's enough. I heard 27, it's enough. Right? You want to do the mitzvah the right way. The right way is 100. This is even more important than that. Because you really are Yotzi with less than 100 chauffeur blasts. You're not Yotzi with less than the amount of, uh, of, of, of matzah. It's really an important point. And there's a range of views. If a person really was eating so slowly, you probably have up to 18 minutes. Because it's a double kazayas, so it's nine times two. But somewhere in between two and 18, find what works for you and your digestive system. Uh, you don't want to overeat, you don't want to become a chazer, for sure not. But you really should try to be makhbed on this. This is an important mitzvah. Okay, we used up a lot of the time on the first two mitzvahs, but that was on purpose, because those are the two mitzvahs daraisa. These are the two most important mitzvahs of the Seder, are Sibrit Yes Mitzrayim, the Haggadah, and uh, Matzah. Now let's try to run through a few of the other Durabonan mitzvot, as well as we'll discuss the issue of leaning uh, when, as we go through them as well. Because uh, leaning will relate to Matzah, so we'll come back to that. So the next big mitzvah we want to talk about, of course, is the four cups. 
Um, and this is brought already down in the Mishnah and in the Gemara. And the idea seems to be that this is a general way of cheiris. It shows our freedom and the fact that we're celebrating our uh, liberation. Um, and <clears throat> we know that uh, many of the Mepharshim, like Rashi and Rashbam, say that the reason we have four cups is because of the Arba, the Shonos of Gula. Moshe tells the Jewish people how Hashem is going to liberate them. He uses four different phrases, V'hotzeti, V'hitzalti, V'ga'alti, V'lakachti. So because of those four phrases, so we have four uh, different cups. Uh, there's different Mepharshim discussed, which I don't want to waste the time on now, even though it is interesting. Why wine? Maybe we should have four something else's. Why is it Dafka four cups of wine? That's yeah, an interesting question, but I don't want to spend the time on it now. But we do have four cups of wine uh, based on the different theories, but the most popular reason being the Arba Lashonos uh, of Geula. When do we drink the four cups? So this is important. The Gemara says it's not a random thing. They have to be, each one has to be uh, drunk at the right time, al haseder, attached to a particular mitzvah. So the first cup, when do we drink? That's part of Kiddush. The second cup, we, as we mentioned before, is, is the Magid, the body of the storytelling. The third is benching, and the fourth is Hallel. You know, that's the hardest one for all of us. Uh, we're physically exhausted, another cup of wine, you know, another great, it's like we're losing our mind of it already, we're exhausted. But those are the four, and that's when they have you. So someone might think, I'll, you know, during the meal, I'll just have an extra cup, and then I don't have to stay up for Hallel. And the answer is that does not work. They have to be done at the right time. Uh, during the Seder. How much do you have to drink? This is very, very important, um, especially because very often um, people do not have like the regular Kiddush cups. Very often they're using whatever their glass cup would be anyway, and oftentimes they're huge. I mean, the amount of ounces that are included in, if you go to a hotel, some of those cups, or even a lot of the standard cups that people buy for Pesach, uh, they're actually way more than you would need. So how much do you really need? Um, so basically, uh, the, you know, it's like pretty much all the other mitzvahs we have of Kiddush or other things during the year. Uh, we have a Revius, you know, and then you're supposed to drink at least a majority of that. So what does that translate into? So since I'm still American, I think in terms of ounces, but you could probably look all this stuff up or easily do the conversion in terms of like fluid liters or whatever they use and <laughs> milliliters or whatever it is. I don't know. Whatever the, you know, I'm very, I'm an American, you know, I'm very American. I, you know, I don't know what these Canadians or other Europeans pretend with other metric systems. Um, so in terms of ounces, uh, there's a big machloket. There is the Chazonish and the Moshe Feinstein. There's different, you know, opinions as to how to translate this stuff into uh, our, our, our modern day measurements. But it's somewhere in between 3.3 and a little over 5 ounces, which is actually a lot less than you would think. It's not huge. Even the 5 ounces is not a huge amount. Uh, just think about a 12-ounce can of soda, right? So it's less than half of that, even according to the most Machmashita. Okay? Um, so if you have a cup that's more or less that, so you, don't have, you have to drink a majority of that. You don't have to drink all of that. You have to drink a majority of that. for the, Again, a sip, which I've seen many a time, uh, is not the mitzvah. The mitzvah is you have to drink a majority of that. Now, according to most postkim, and this is what I would say is the bottom line, it doesn't matter how big the cup is. If you can roughly, again, it's easier to have a cup if you knew in advance was basically the five ounces, so that's easy. You could, with the naked eye, you could tell if you did a majority of the cup or not. If you have one of these huge cups, so you're, you're more guesstimating, did I drink two and a half ounces? Did I drink, you know, the minimum amount? But probably, no matter how big your cup is, you still only need to drink a majority of a revius. I am letting you know, again, for those who want to be particularly machmir, or you have a family member who's been very machmir and you just think they're being crazy, they're not being crazy. There is another opinion out there of the Ramban. The Ramban says that a special halacha when it comes to the Seder is you have to drink a majority of the cup no matter how big the cup is. So if you have these super cups, then either you're going to you know, get drunk basically uh, after one or two cups, or you're just not going to keep that Ramban. 
I don't think a person has to be machmer for that Ramban, but it is brought down in Shachan Aruch, it is a hitter, and therefore, you know, personally, if I was the one buying the cups, I would personally recommend don't buy a bigger cup, so that way you can still only drink a majority and not worry about the Ramban. Even if you did have a bigger cup, or you went, you're going to your in-laws, you're going to a hotel, and there is a bigger cup, I don't think you have to make yourself crazy, because I don't think you have to be machmer for this Ramban, but you should just be aware it's out there, and a lot of people are... Uh, a lot of people are machmir for this. Um, the Archa and brings it down. Others bring it down as well. Um, women are obligated in the four cups. Again, based on the idea of Afhein Hoyub Osanes, um, as we mentioned. What do you have to drink for Afhein? So the Gemara says there's an in of using red. Different reasons for that. But one of the reasons, which is most popular, is because of the connection to the blood. And unfortunately, the, the, you know, the pain of the Jewish people and what the midstream did to the babies, um, etc. The Gemara also says that you need not just have the color, meaning red, but you also need to have Tam Yayin which the Rashbam says means alcoholic. Now, the reason this is important is because this is the grape juice question. Right? Any type of red wine, you know, for the most part, that's alcoholic is sufficient. What about grape juice? So again, this is a whole sheer in and of itself. But the bottom line is we know that throughout the year for Kiddush, many people use grape juice and pretty much no one argues on that. What about for the four cups? So this is a massive machloket among modern-day poskim. There were poskim, I would say most prominently, but not exclusively, was Ramosha Feinstein, who felt you could not use grape juice at the Seder because of this idea of the Rashbam and others that cherus, right, alcoholic beverage is considered more luxurious, more chashev. You know, I happen to not be an alcohol person, but I'm aware that I'm probably in the minority of the human race. So a lot of people appreciate alcohol, uh, hopefully responsibly, but people do appreciate it. And that's considered more hush of the alcohol. So the Ramosha and others felt that even if Kiddush throughout the year, you could use grape juice, but you shouldn't use grape juice for any of the four uh, cups. Uh, there's a middle view that says, well, better you should use wine, uh, maybe at least for the first cup, or have a little bit of wine and add it to the grape juice, or something that you can at least taste a little alcohol. But if, you don't, if you're really, 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 really not going to like it, uh, I don't mean a little bit, like really, really not going to like it, okay, you can use uh, the grape juice. And then there's a third view, which among others, and he's not the only one, but among others, uh, is brought down in the name of Rav Soloveitchik, who felt that if one truly will enjoy grape juice better, it's not like, okay, Bidiyevid will let you. It's actually better to use grape juice, because it's not just, in, you know, there's one way to show I'm free, is I can drink an alcoholic drink, but drinking something you don't like doesn't sound like a free man either. Right? It's more derecheris to drink what you like. And if you really, really do like grape juice better, uh, then Rav Salvechik is quoted by Rav Shechter and others as saying that he thinks that grape juice might even be lechachila. So if you ask me, bottom line, I think anyone who reasonably enjoys wine, it definitely would be better to drink wine. I think, I think even Rav Salvechik would probably have said that. But there are many people who really, really don't enjoy wine. And certainly as you get into cups two, three, and four, uh, a lot of people lose the taste of wine. Again, some people increase their taste of wine. But... Others, I, I, can rep, I can relate to the people who lose their taste of wine as the night goes on. So I personally think that there's nothing wrong at all, and maybe even the for those people to use grape juice. When I was a kid, the thing I looked forward to all year was we had sparkling Kedem grape juice at the Seder. You know, anything with fizz makes a kid happy, and I haven't lost a taste for that. It's still like my favorite thing. And then they made up this thing called wine with fizz for people like me, 7% alcohol. Um, very little, you know. So I happen to personally even prefer the white version of that, but not the Seder. At the Seder, you can have the, So there's the, whatever I'm drinking is going to have bubbles. I can tell you that right now, hopefully. Either it's going to be the wine with the bubbles or the grape juice with the bubbles, because that's my derecheris. So I think that, you know, a person should do whatever is their derecheris, uh, again, if a person wants to be machmir uh, for a Moshe and even drink wine if they don't like it, that's what a Moshe would tell you to do. I think, you know, again, I, I sometimes try to have wine, let's say, for the first cup, but at some point I know I'm going I'm to stop enjoying even the bubbly wine, and then I'll personally have no problem switching to grape juice. 
and you know, depending on what your family member is, I think that that's very, very, very reasonable. Okay. What? Yeah, please. Of course. Two things. How do we feel about like bar, like people who are over bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah, in terms of the wine? Like, was there anything? Like, no. Again, from a strictly halacha perspective, everything I said is equally equivalent to them as it is to you. In your chinuch, you know, I'm happy to discuss with that privately. But if that was a personal, that's a personal decision. If you want my advice, I'm happy to give it to you on a case by case basis. But that's a parenting chinuch decision. If you think that, you know, in the in context of a seder with your parents and your grandparents or whatever, that's an appropriate way for a child to have wine. Or if you know, and I, I can see many parents feeling that way, and other parents saying, no, 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 I don't want my children to have wine even for that. Right. I, I, I'm not going to make a statement on that uh, to the whole group. Okay. But nice. but halakhali, it's no different than you or me. Um, so is there, there's a basis for mixing? Like yes, absolutely. Mix? Absolutely. Again, I think, like, again, there are people who, who really think you need to have wine and they want to make sure there's going to be a taste and you're going to feel the wine. But too much wine is too much. Then they add some, uh, again, I, I'm not sure you're gaining much if you have 85, 90% grape juice and you put a little wine in. I'm not sure that does much because the people who think you need to have wine really feel you need to be able to taste and feel a little bit of the wine. But there's no question if you're not a wine drinker, you know, a 50-50 combination or a 60-40 combination right. is a lot more tolerable than all wine if you really don't like wine. Yeah. What's the Friday night amount? Um, so Friday night, uh, it's, it's a good question. So Friday night, the, the, we generally, again, the amount of the ounces, we would try to be machmir for the bigger shear. But again, that's just because Kiddush on Friday night might have an extra, if Yontav, again, that's, you know, this year it actually comes out on Friday night, so some people try to be a little bit more machmir. Yes, again, I would try, again, if you can't, you can't, but you should try, you should, again, if five ounces is much less than you, than you think, when you think of a cup. Most of our cups are probably that anyway. What is the standard cup you buy? I don't even know. Six, seven. Seven, I think I'm saying, so, so we're talking about something less than that. Again, if you, now some people have the minog of the kosher, their kiddush cups from out the year, so those you have to really make sure, again, they're probably bigger enough anyway, but you want to just double check that. Um, yeah, please, yeah. Um, I've always wondered, like, in terms of bracha afrona, why we don't make bracha afrona in between the, yeah, it's a, it, and why we make a new bracha All good questions, which uh, they're reasonable, but I'm going to run out of time if I answer them, Okay. I apologize. Okay, question just uh, for those listening on the recording or on the Zoom who didn't hear was why do we make four different brachos? Usually one bracha is enough to drink you know, the same thing different times. And because of, and paradoxically, even though we make new brachas, we don't make new brachas. It's a very interesting discussion, but uh, not for now. Okay, um, quickly, quickly, we're going to try to run through three more things. Leaning, murr, and halal. Um, those are the other mitzvahs we haven't gotten to yet. So when it comes to leaning, leaning is a very, very fascinating topic. Again, brought down already in the Mishnah and others. And it seems like, at least the way the Ramam understands the Mishnah, that we lean as an expression of chayv adam liros as atzmo kilhu It's a way of demonstrating our freedom because at least back in the day, that's how you know kings and queens and free people used to eat was they would be uh, they would be reclining. I guess is maybe the better word uh, than leaning. Um, there is interesting. You know, linguistic issue, which may actually be profound. Uh, usually, we say chayvadim liros as atmo. A person has to see him or see herself as if they went out of Mitzrayim. Imagine you were there. The Rambam actually says the mitzvah is chiv laharos to demonstrate. So I always think of that as like colonial Williamsburg. You know, when they dress up, you know, and you act not that you actually feel it. Who could feel it? Yeah, I'm living in 2022, but. You're supposed to act as if. And there may be a lot of interesting ramifications to those different interpretations. But that's the basic idea. And therefore, we, we lean because back in the day, they used to lean. It's interesting. Uh, there was one opinion in the Rishonim, the opinion of the Rav Yah, who says something which, out of context, sounds like a non-Orthodox rabbi. You'll forgive me. But he says, it's not historically relevant anymore. 
which is usually like not the way Orthodox rabbis think. Right? It was true then, but it's not true. Says the Rav Yah, they leaned because then that was a meaningful thing. No one leans now. You know, if you got invited to the White House and all of a sudden you wanted to show your great Amos HaKovid for the White House, you started leaning, right? Either they would throw you out or they would arrest you but, or look funny at you. You wouldn't think, oh, look how much COVID he's showing to the president, right? Fancy bone china, you know, find out how, what the queen does, you know, how many plates, how many forks. That's what cheres means nowadays, what it means to be a melech or a malka. It doesn't mean lean. So the Rav Yah says, yeah, it's not relevant anymore. It's really shocking, but that's what the Rav Yah says. So not surprising, all the other Rishonim disagree with him. And in Shulchan Aruch, we basically bring down that even though it makes sense what the Rabbi said, but we still machmir, as we all know from the way we've grown up our whole lives, that we, we still lean. But the fact that there's this Rabbi out there uh, may have ramifications, and it's important to be aware of, which I'll get to in a moment. How do you lean? So first of all, it's important to know, especially, for example, if you're on a chair like this, it doesn't have an armrest, you have a challenge. Because some people think that if they're the leaning Tower of Pisa, they're fulfilling a mitzvah. They just go like this. Now, that is less comfortable than any you could possibly imagine. And halakhically, that is not called reclining. To recline means you're reclining on something. So if you have an armrest, that's the easiest. Or the corner of the table, that's also fine. Putting your arm on the table and leaning up against that. If you have a pillow that can give you some kind of support, although without an armrest, it probably won't. Uh, it's more just like, uh, you know, a figment of something. Um, so, but you need to lean on something. That's number one. Number two is, we lean to the left. Uh, the Gemara says there's two reasons to lean to the left. One is we assume most people are righties, so you need to have your right hand free. If you're leaning on your left arm, you need the right hand free to feed yourself. And we're worried about the, uh, the, the, the food pipe and the windpipe c- confusing, and if you lean this way, maybe the food will go down uh, the wrong pipe. And this is a, not just an academic question in the post game asked, what about a lefty? I'm a lefty. What about lefties? So if it's just about your free hand, then lefties should lean to the right, so they have their free, their left hand free. But the post say, no, chamira sakanta meisura. Uh, again, even though post can point out now, leading to the, to the right, not, it was not dangerous. It was probably a mistake from a scientific perspective. I've heard many people make that point. I've seen it. It's, it's, it's brought down as far. It's hard, it doesn't really seem to be true. Nevertheless, that is the, not only the minhag, that is the halacha. Everyone, righties and lefties, uh, leans to the left uh, because of this. Who, ha, when do we lean? So the answer is we lean at the appropriate parts that are kind of more celebratory. We lean for all four cups. We lean for matzah. We lean for korech because of the matzah. Um, but we do not lean for something like maror. Because that's the opposite of the cherus. Interesting question why we don't lean for karpas. Right, because we're dipping. The dipping is considered also some kind of a luxurious thing. Uh, Rav David Feinstein brings down, he thinks we should probably be leaning for karpas. He doesn't understand why not, but no one does it. So if you happen to have the family minogu, you know someone who does it, it may be that it's really the right thing to do. I'm not even sure, but I've never done it. I've never seen anyone do it, but it's just a curiosity why we don't lean for karpas. Uh, but I don't think that is the common minog. Um, and last, but at least on the leaning thing is, well, who leans? So this is actually, there are a lot of different categories that are discussed in the Gemara, but the most relevant for us is, do women lean or not? And it's a very fascinating, the Gemara. The Gemara says, in Psachim, Isha eats al-Baila, a married woman who's having Seder with her husband, she does not have to lean, but an Isha Chashuva has to lean, an important woman has to lean. Now, okay, it's a very uh, nice uh, language. What is that? What, how do you, you know, if beauty is the eye in the beholder, is importance in the eye of the beholder, how do you define important? It's not clear at all from the Gemara. And there's actually a number of different interpretations of what exactly is going on uh, in the Gemara. So the Rashbam basically seems to imply that it may relate to the dynamic of the marriage. Rashbam says that maybe typically, Maybe the marriage is not necessarily considered one of equals, and maybe she feels a little bit subservient to her husband. Therefore, she's not going to really feel so free. It's kind of a fake out for her to pretend when she's not. 
But in Isha Chashuva, but there could be other marriages, where a woman does feel that way. It sounds like it's a very subjective thing. Or maybe he's referring to someone who's dafka single and not married, who's independent. That's actually other, some, some of Farshim say, yes, it's dafka specifically referring to um, single women, whether they never were married or divorced or widowed, so then they would lean. That's one interpretation. Uh, some interpretations are different. The Shiltot and others say, it's just not the way of women. It's not, he might mean, it's not Sanua, it's not clear what he means, but he basically just says it wasn't the Minog, like women didn't lean. You know, if, if, we're all, if this is all about what they did in the olden days, and what did they, it, evidently he suggests that the Gemara was saying mostly kings would lean, but not necessarily queens. But if you're in a place where women do lean, if that's what's called Isha Chashuva, then there are, the Shultot said then maybe women uh, would lean as well. And last but not least, again, there's more interpretations, but I'll just mention to you a third interpretation. Uh, somebody, the Rabbeinu Manoach, who's a commentary on the Rambam, says, well, really it has to do with, the, we, we started off this year with a little bit of a humorous anecdote about how difficult sometimes preparing for the Seder can be for women. So Rabbeinu Manoach, one of his interpretations says, yes, that's exactly it. A typical woman feels like a, a fishmatted by the time she gets to the Seder. She, the last thing on her mind is, I'm going to be a free woman because I leaned. But says Rabbi Manoach, you have certain women who are very wealthy. They have avadim, ushvachot, they had had help. You can have help in the house, you can be in a hotel. But if you're not fashmatted when you come to the Seder, he says, why shouldn't you lean? You're feeling just as free as your husband. It's a Metziah's question. So there's different interpretations of the Gemara, but what's interesting is how it comes into the Shulchan Aruch. So it comes along the Ramah, who was not a feminist, he wasn't even a proto-feminist, living a few hundred years ago in Krakow, Poland, and he says... All of our women nowadays are chashuvos. You can, you know, that, that's, you know, tweet that out or whatever people do nowadays. Um, says the Ramah, all women are chashuvos. Kol anashim shlana mikre chashuvos. And yet, says the Ramah, the minigas women don't typically lean. Why? Because the Rav Yah said nowadays there's no point in leaning because no one leans anymore. So of course the obvious question is, it's a catch-22, if no one leans anymore, then why are even the men leaning? It's not clear at all. So I think the easiest answer to this question is actually something that Rav Asher Weiss published in his Haggadah, where he said, listen, probably what it means is, Mi'ikar hadin, really, 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 no one should lean, not men or women. Because probably the Rav Yah was right. But the minog was always that men lean, so we keep on doing it as a minog. Not really as a chiv anymore, but more as a minog. But, says Rav Asher Weiss, probably what it means is, the minog never was for women to lean. So therefore, there's no reason to do it. If it would be meaningful, there'd be reason to do it. It's, it was not the minog, and it's not really meaningful in today's culture, so what would be the point? So, the bottom line, from our perspective, is I've known that there are different families where women have different practices. I, there's no, based on the Ramah, I, I can't speak for Svartim, but I, I, I don't know if they'd be against it, I'd be surprised. But certainly for Ashkenazi women, any woman who does have the practice of leaning, who wants to lean, there's nothing wrong with it whatsoever. Whether it's really a mitzvah or not is an open question, but there's certainly nothing wrong with it, for sure not. If a woman who doesn't lean, doesn't want to lean, it's not your family custom for women to lean, it's also fine, because that's what the Ramah brings down, that women don't lean. But there's nothing wrong with it whatsoever, and it may even really, really be a mitzvah, if that's your minute, if you want to do it, uh, I, have, so I have no problem with it, because it's hate, but it's a little bit of a gray issue. If you'll indulge me five more minutes, I'll just finish very quickly, we'll do the Murrah uh, and the Hallel. So Murrah is only rabbinic, which is why we say it until the end of the year. Murrah is only a rabbinic mitzvah, because in the Chumash it's very connected to Karman Pesach, so without the Karman Pesach, um, you know, it's like having a sandwich with just the ketchup or just the mustard and no, none of the meat. Right? Murrah is the relish on the steak of the Karman Pesach. Without the Karman Pesach, it's only the uh, Rabbanon. And we do this to remember the fact that the Egyptians uh, embittered our lives. Women are obligated, unfortunately for you, women are obligated like men in, in Murrah, uh, based on the idea of Afhein Hayub Osahanes. Uh, huge discussion, going back to the Mishnah, what is Murrah? And the two most popular candidates are either romaine lettuce or actual, you know, the root of a, ho- a horse, a horse radish. 
very, very few people could actually eat enough horseradish in and of itself. Um, so much, much more common, and according to many postgame preferable, is some kind of uh, romaine lettuce. Romaine lettuce is a little bit bitter. It's not always particularly bitter. I remember my father used to put a lot of chrein in the romaine lettuce. You could do that if you want. That was my father's menog. But you don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. Already the Yerushalmi says, yeah, we understand that romaine lettuce is not going to like make you start crying and your eyes water. But the idea is, it was like what happened to the Jews in Egypt. Because in the beginning it was good, and then over time it got embittered. So too says Yerushalmi, when it comes to this, these kinds of lettuce, you eat a little bit, it's not so bad. But the more you eat, it actually gets more and more bitter. So I don't know if that, how true it is or not, but that's the symbolism the Yerushalmi says of, uh, of, ro- of romaine lettuce. Uh, how much do you have to eat? So again, we're talking about a kezayis, but since it's only rabbinic, we can do a quote-unquote smaller kezayis. And how does that translate into, um, you know, how do you figure out how much is a kezayis? So I thought, I'm trusting Rev. Ramon on this, and uh, the easiest way that he uh, described it, he thought it's really the leaves, not the stalk, just the stalk itself doesn't really count, but in terms of the leaves, he thought a full leaf of an average-sized piece of romaine lettuce is enough. Again, not a little piece, not a little bite, not even two little bites, uh, it doesn't have to be the hugest, doesn't have to be five pieces, but the, a full pe- a full leaf of an average romaine lettuce, uh, he thought was basically the uh, what you would assume to be um, a kezayis. And let's finish up with, oh, sorry, very quickly, get two more points, afikomen and halal. So we mentioned afikomen previously before, that it, the word means dessert, um, and the carbon Pesach used to be, you know, again, I don't know if we envision what the Seder was like back in the day. The main course wasn't the carbon Pesach. We ate dinner, and then al-hasova, when we were full, but not too full, dessert was the carbon Pesach. That's my kind of meal. Steak for dessert. Ah, then again, I like regular dessert too. That's my problem. I like all good food. Anyway, um, but that, so just like the last taste on your mouth when you would go to sleep at night in the time of the Mesa Mikdash was the carbon Pesach. So that's why we say, We have the afikomen to commemorate either the meat or the matzah that was eaten with the meat. We mentioned that uh, previously. Um, here's an important point, and I'll give you leverage over your children and grandchildren. So we know we break matzah, we hide it, and the kids and every family's got their minog with stealing and hiding, all that. So kids think they have you over the barrel. They don't give you back the matzah. You can't fulfill it. If you, if you worst case scenario, you had lost that matzah, you could fulfill Afikomen with any piece of Shmur Matzah. So just, you should just let the children, if they're playing hardball with you, you tell them Rabbi Gottlieb said, I don't even need your matzah. So you're going to take the ping pong table or whatever it is that you're, you're negotiating over with your kids for, uh, for Afikomen. Uh, it should be eaten before midnight. That's at a very important point. Midnight meaning halachic midnight, whatever chatzos is. It has to be eaten before that. Um, and it should be the last thing that you eat. Uh, if we, we still have you know, wine at the Seder, that's okay. And if you needed some water, uh, that's okay. But unless there's a real necessity, a person should not eat or really drink anything else um, after that. And for this, because some post can say this might be the real mitzvah of matzah, we do try, I know this is very hard, it's the end of the Seder, and you're exhausted and you're already full, we do try to have the double shear. Uh, which I mentioned the different options earlier in this thing, just like for Moti Matzah, we do try to have the same amount uh, for Afi Komen. And last but not least, this is when we're all exhausted and the kids are off the wall or they're sleeping under the table or wherever they are, um, is Hallel. Um, again, there was Hallel with the carbon Pesach back in the day, so we do Hallel as well. There are a lot of things that are unique and anomalous about the Hallel of um, the Seder. Uh, it's at night. We never say Hallel at night. We say Hallel only once a year at night, and that's at the Seder. Um, we do it sitting. Hallel is always done sit- standing. We don't make a bracha. The, we always start bracha, baruch, you know, across the Hallel. We don't say a bracha at the Seder. Um, and basically, if you add up all the... And usually during the year... Uh, women are not obligated in the halal. Women are obligated. Women are, are obligated in the halal of the Seder. Um, 
And you put all the anomalies together, uh, the most common explanation already brought down in the Rishonim is that this halal is different. And it goes back to how we started, and it, it goes back to a theme we've already mentioned previously in this year, which is that usually when we think about halal on Sukkot or other holidays or, Pesach, or Hanukkah, I should say, or even during davening the rest of Pesach, we're commemorating an event in the past. At the Seder, we're actually not commemorating, we're reliving. We're in the moment. And we're supposed to, again, I'm not saying it's easy, not even close to being easy, but from a religious, halakhic, hashkafic perspective, we're re-experiencing and recreating that, just like that initial thrill, if you're actually saved, that halal, that song, you know, that was not pro forma, that was not cliche, that was not yet another Karabach davening. It was like, wow, like you're in the moment. That's why, so that's, Usually we're trying to recreate something or, or recollect something so we have different rules for halal. But the Seder, we're actually re-experiencing it as if we're on the banks uh, of the Amsuf, and that explains a lot of the different anomalies, including the fact that uh, women are obligated just as much as men. Okay.